if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, we will look at today's passage. Isaiah chapter 9, but I lied, we're actually going to start in chapter 8. So if you turn with me to Isaiah 8, starting in verse 17, is where we'll read, but we're going to unpack chapter 9 today. Isaiah 8, starting in verse 17. Isaiah 8, starting in verse 17, we read, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel and from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spirits who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephitali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampled boot a battle and the bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name, he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truths on our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, God, you are good. You are sovereign and your instruction is true. Write your truth and instruction on our heart this morning. 
God, I pray that you would guard my mouth if I would say anything unprofitable or outside of your word and your will, that it would be forgotten by these people, that it would fall away from their ears. But God, I pray that your truth would remain in their hearts. God, I pray that you would break down stubborn pride. God, I pray you would rip it out by its roots, that you would crush hearts and bind wounds, and that you would use your perfect word in our lives today. I pray it all for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. If you are looking for last-minute shopping for loved ones, you might consider the 19, excuse me, the 1731 book written by Isaac Watts called A Humble Attempt Toward the Revival of Practical Religion Among Christians. And that is the short version of the title. It actually is much longer. If you're not familiar with Isaac Watts, you're probably familiar with some of his hymns, like Joy to the World, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. These are songs that Isaac Watts, the 18th century Englishman, wrote. And he also wrote this book. He wrote this book called A Humble Attempt Toward the Revival of Practical Religion Among Christians because he saw an issue in the church. And the issue was this. Christians weren't living like Christians. They didn't seem to care about holiness. They didn't seem to care about piousness. That was, they didn't care about any of that stuff. And part of the reason for that was the rise of something called deism. Deism. Now, what in the world is deism? Well, deism is a view that true religion is a natural religion. And in like a lot of different philosophical views, it takes different shapes as you study its history. But some of the things we see with deism is as a philosophical reason will trump God's Word. There's an emphasis on the universal human nature. So you might say, and a philosopher might disagree with me, if you hear someone say, well, people are all the same, it might be coming from this. There is no special revelation in deism, so God is not found in the Bible, right? No special revelation, only general, only natural revelation of God. There are no supernatural events. So the idea that Christ would come, that God would come in the form of a baby born of a virgin, or, or that he would rise from the dead, that's, they didn't believe in that kind of stuff. And we can see that in Thomas Jefferson's Bible. If you're not familiar with the Jefferson Bible, it's just the Gospels, and he took basically his scissors one day, must have got really bored in colonial America, and cut all of the supernatural elements out, of the Gospels, and just left the moral teachings of Christ. So there's no incarnation, there's no resurrection. He's just a good teacher. Deism finally came to mean a belief in an absentee God who created the universe. So this isn't, these aren't atheists, they don't believe in no God, they believe in a God, but God creates the universe, he sets all of the, the, the scientific laws in order, and then he walks away. He's like a clock builder who winds the clock and then walks away. He's not involved. He's not doing things with us. He's off doing something else. So friends, when people ask me, why does Advent matter? Right? Like why? The New Testament never says uh, every December you're going to have this four to five sermon series and you're going to think about Jesus being born. We don't see anything about having Christmas in the Bible. We don't see any of those things, so why don't we just keep going through Amos? Like, why don't we make Amos longer and then jump right into something else? Why do we have Advent? Well, these events, deism, 
All of these things are one reason why we should take regular time to remember who Jesus Christ is. Traditionally, the Western church has done that this time of year. And I see no issues with that. But when you ask why do we take this time of year and think about Jesus, that is why, friends, because when we unhitch ourselves from what the Bible teaches, when we stop thinking about that, it goes away pretty quickly and then it all comes unraveled. I mean, even, I didn't mean to say this, but in the passage this morning in chapter 8, when he says, they say to you, inquire of mediums and spiritualists and chirp in these matters and we might say in our day when you go to the pragmatist or the philosopher or the person who says this is how you should live he says are you god's people should you not go to god's instruction and his testimony and so we take this time friends to think about christ coming to earth remaining what he was fully god he became what he was not truly and fully man this dawn of redeeming grace taking from an old hymn, Silent Night, a line we have named the sermon series The Dawn of Redeeming Grace as we think about the fact that Christ's light has dawned into human history. Last week we saw that a star will one day rise from Jacob, this light, this bright light. We saw Balaam, this pagan priest who sees this bright light. He's not a, a believer. He doesn't, he's not one of God's people, but he sees this bright light. He sees this, this coming star. And this week we are going to see more about this light that has dawned on people into darkness. So let's look uh, at Isaiah chapter 8 real quick as we think about the second week of Advent. I won't read the whole thing again, but we just, we, we, for our context, we read this. We see that uh, the writer saying, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. That's never a good thing when the Lord is hiding his face from anyone. And he, he, he's talking about their rebellion, and he says they will wander through the land dejected and hungry. They will be famished. Remember, they're looking to sorcerers and mediums or, or, or philosophers or pragmatists or, or, or gurus or czars. They're looking to those people instead of God's instruction. And this verse 22, look here, it says, they will look toward the earth and they will see only distress, darkness, and gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Friends, we see here at the beginning of our passage that God is hiding His face from Jacob. And the people are going to mediums instead of God's instruction. And at the end of chapter 8, we get this ugly picture of, of darkness, of distress, of gloom. It's a dreary picture already, but then it ends on an even lower note. right? Like, Look at the end of the verse. It says, they will be driven into thick darkness. Right, Like there's darkness, and then there's thick darkness. Like there's the darkness of walking to your car at 3.30 p.m. Right, this time of year. And then there's the darkness of like being in a basement with no windows or lights, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's what we're talking about here. These people are walking in thick darkness, and it sets the stage for verses 1 and 2. Look with me at those, these verses. Nevertheless, the gloom of distressed land will not be like that of old and former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea and the lands of the east of Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So we see here, as it shifts, that these people walking in thick darkness have seen a great light. This light has dawned on those who are walking in darkness. But as you read this and you think about the structure of the sentence, you should rightly ask, all right, wait, is the light coming? Or have they already seen the light? Right, the people are walking in darkness, but then Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and the light has dawned. So is it coming? Has it already happened? Well, Alex Machir helps us a lot here, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting Hebrew literary technique that is employed when he says this. This verse is written in past tense because it is so sure to happen. It, it is written as though this event has already happened. This future event is written as though it has already happened because it is so sure that God is going to do it. So we have a future promise from God as we start. We haven't even got into the outline of the sermon, right? And we have a future promise from God that is so indisputable that it's written in past tense. You might not think that's cool, but I think it's really cool. I think it's awesome. The way that the Lord wrote this thousands of years ago, that we have a people who are walking in thick darkness. Remember, to walk in something is to live that way, right? That's why Paul says, that we are to walk worthy of the calling that we have had. So we see a people that are not just like, you know, they're good people that are walking around blindly. No, they are living darkly. And some of them have seen or will see a great light. They will experience this dawn of redeeming grace. The one who spoke and light came on. In a universe that was dark, he spoke and light began. Our sun began to burn. All the stars that, that are or will be began to burn. He will bring the dawn of this living light, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time. And it is so sure that it is spoken about in past tense. And that's where we start today. Considering this light that will dawn in human history. In Isaiah 9, we find a divine promise of a future great light. And this great light will bring joy. It will bring deliverance. It will bring victory in the Davidic king. Now we're in Isaiah. It's a new book. I haven't preached from Isaiah for two years, I think it is. So it's just good to, to think about the context of Isaiah as we get started here. And God would send... Judah, as a summary of Isaiah, God would send Judah into Babylonian captivity because of their continued rebellion. Right? So we left Amos not long ago, where Israel is going to be sent, or is going to be conquered by Assyria. And now we're, we're talking about Judah, and they're going to be sent around the same time period into captivity in Babylon. Yet, we read in Isaiah that he promises to restore a remnant through the work of his servant who would bear away their sins by his death. So, kind of like with Amos, we get this darkness of their rebellion, but we also get this promise of a coming Redeemer. And that promise of light brings joy. Look with me at verse 3. I'm going to start reading verse 2, though. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, a light that has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and they rejoice when dividing spoils. So these, these people of God will experience joy. They will, they will rejoice. Joy from an enlarged nation. Remember how this ties in with Amos not long ago where we saw that when God restores His people, all of the nations that are called by God's name will be included in God's people, included in Israel. We see this in Romans as well when Paul talks about people, Gentiles being grafted into the tree. Those who are not physical descendants of Abraham will be grafted into the nation of Abraham. We see an enlarged nation. In this enlarged nation, this redemption brings joy. And still today, God's salvation brings joy. When those who are added to God's people are added, it brings joy. Redeeming a people brings joy. But we live in a time that's confused about joy, don't we? What is joy? If I ask you, right, and I won't, I promise I won't because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if I stood at the back door as you were leaving today and I said, hey, what is joy? What would you say? Would you say, well, my children, my grandchildren, my home brings me joy. Getting to travel brings me joy. Maybe you have a hobby that you really like to do and you say, well, that, that brings me joy. I don't think those things are necessarily horribly wrong, but they're not the joy we're talking about when we talk about Christian joy. John Piper says this, joy is the response of a human when they see that God is more desirable than other things. Right? So for the people of God, for for those who have been bought by Christ, our joy is what? It is in God. Above what? Other things. We saw in Amos what happens when humans find their ultimate joy in other things. When our hearts find joy and satisfaction in the creation over God, it all goes awry. This is a theme through the whole Bible, friends. We can't get away from it. We must keep the other things in their proper place if we were to know true joy. Is that easy? No. I think it's been hard for all of humans and all of history, but I think it's especially hard today. I think it's especially hard when the TV tells you that you will find your joy if you ladies quit your corporate job, move back to your hometown, and reconnect with your high school sweetheart at Christmas. And those of you who've been around for a while know that it's not Advent until Pastor Allen takes a swipe at Hallmark movies. And I like Hallmark movies. Or at least I watch them with my wife. But HGTV tells you that your true joy is found in what? Your forever home. Right? Like they walk into this house, it's all jacked up, and, and they look around, and then when, at the end of it, you come in, and the woman cries, and the guy goes, ho, ho, ho. And everybody says, this is our forever home, and we're going to be here, and it's going to make us so happy, and it's going to bring us all this joy. And I know what they're saying. This will be the last home we ever own. But just think about what they're saying. Our forever home. Friends, my forever home is anywhere on this globe. And there's not a house on this globe that will compare to the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. But 
You expect your pastor to say that this time of year, right? You expect your pastor to say, hey, don't go to presents, go to the ultimate gift. But how many of you men are hoping your spouse really picked up and keyed up on that phrase that you said, hoping she'll figure out what present you want? You see, our whole commercial society is flooding your mind with, the, with their idea that you want the other things most. I bet a bunch of you have got emails since we've sat here telling you about some sale of something that's going to make you happy. And I get a few minutes every Sunday to stand up here and plead with you not to buy into it. You think your job is hard? Try and tell people who are flooded day in and day out, 24-7, throughout the week that they need these things to make them happy and you get to stand up here in your weak way and say, no, it's Jesus. Thankfully, I serve a sovereign God or I couldn't do it. Friends, the first question of the shorter catechism is right. The chief end of man is to glorify God in what? To enjoy Him forever. That is our joy. God is our joy. Christ is your joy. You are called to find your joy in God and His salvation, not in a vacation, not in a retirement home, not in a boat, not in killing a bigger buck than your friends, but in Christ. If indeed you have, as 1 Peter 2.2 says, tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The people will rejoice before God. They rejoice because of His salvation. And second, the promise of this light brings deliverance. Look with me at the end of verse 4. Just as you did on the day of Midian. You saw, I'm sorry, the beginning of verse 4. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor. Friends, this verse would call to mind in Israel, in the time of Isaiah, would call to mind them being delivered from Egypt. Like we know the story, right? Like the the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt, and God draws them to Himself. This is foundational. This is foundational to the faith. That God drew this people, He chose these people and drew them out of slavery. And then He provided for them in the wilderness. God shatters the oppressive yoke that was laid upon His people. He removed the rod and the staff of their oppressors, the Egyptians, when they were in bondage, and set them free. And when I hear that, my mind goes to Romans. It goes to Romans in chapter 6 when Paul reminds the church that God has delivered them and He has delivered them from slavery to sin. I just want to read for you here out of Romans 6 where Paul writes this, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching which you were handed over and have been set free from sin. You became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using human uh, uh, analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourself as slaves to impurity and to the greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness which results in sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit has produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of these things is death. But now you have been set free from sin. 
and have become enslaved to God. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification as the outcome of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, you have been set free from the bondage of sin. From slavery to sin, He has shattered that yoke. And we respond with joyful submission and gratefulness to our Lord and offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. But friends, God is the one who delivered. He is the one that brings the victory. Look with me at the end of verse 4 when we read, Just as you did on the day of Midian, for every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. With this light, God gives us the promise of victory. The Lord grants victory just like He did on the day of Midian. You say, what is the day of Midian? Well, if you remember your veggie tales, there's a veggie tales on it, but if you don't remember your veggie tales, Midian's knights were these descendants of Abraham through his wife Zipporah, and they turned against Israel. And the Midianites were the ones that Gideon and his army defeated. And I say defeated in, in what they call it, scare quotes or whatever, because really it was God. The Midians defeated with clay pots and torches and trumpets. And it's one of those stories that's a clear sign of God's providence as he defeats this enemy. And that's what Isaiah talks about here, this story where God is the one who defeated the Midianites. He won the day. And then look at verse 5. The people... Every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel from the fire. The people enjoy that victory. Their, their garments of war are burned. Right? Like I, I have an old footlocker down in our basement full of old army gear. Right? That's what they're talking about here. saying all these boots, all this stuff, it's burned. It's not needed anymore because God has given the victory. And it recalls us to remember that God is the one who wins the day. Not us. Because of our sin nature, we were unable to save ourselves from the wrath that every single one of us rightly deserve. Friend, I love you enough. If you think that you're basically good, you're wrong. You were born dead in sin, and so was I. Every single one of us was born dead in sin. We can't do anything to help ourselves. Because of the sin of our first parents, the Bible says we are born dead in sin and have a nature of sin. And had God not acted on our behalf, defeat and eternal damnation, that would be what we would enjoy. Not the victory that God brings. He had to come to us because over and over and over and over, the Old Testament reminds us of our inability. But He came to us by sending His only Son. God the Son, perfect and sinless. The only one born holy. He's the perfect priest, and He offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He did what we could not, and He offered perfect atonement in His own perfect and holy blood. Victory's His. When the dawn of this redeeming grace, this great light dawns, the victory is brought, but it's not because of us. It's because of what God does. Our joy, our deliverance, our victory, it is all one through one man. And at the dawn of this redeeming grace, we have a promise of light that brings the Davidic king. Look with me at verses 6-7. through For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. 
and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its property will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. How does this covenant-fulfilling work come about? How does this joy come? How does this victory come? How does this promise to David fulfilled? How is this promise to Jacob fulfilled? It's only in Jesus Christ. It's not up to the creation, but to the divine descendant of David. His shoulders will bear the rule. He is the star scepter Balaam spoke of last week. Isaiah and his audience get a picture of this king. They get some of his attributes. And what do we see here? The one dawn is the wonderful counselor. This is more like supernatural counselor, right? This isn't your high school guidance counselor. This isn't your mental health counselor. This isn't the person that helps you with whatever. This is supernatural, perfect wisdom. King Ahaz, during the time of Isaiah, had fallen wisdom, right? Solomon, he had human wisdom. But this king has wisdom that is far above anything that is human. His name could also be rendered the one giving supernatural counsel. Wisdom that far exceeds anything ever known. He would come with the wisdom of the everlasting God. Why? Because he is the mighty God as we see here. Matyur says that Isaiah means for us when he says this passage, mighty God, to take serious the L component of Emmanuel. Right? L being one of the names of God. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not someone that we can just cut out his supernatural works and and keep his moral teachings, friends. This is the eternal God made flesh. Mighty God, one to be worshipped as we see in the Gospels. He is the eternal Father. Now, what does that mean? That's the trickiest part of this passage, right? Jesus, the eternal Father? I thought he was the Son. How is he the Son and the Father? Well, one commentator writes, it's unlikely that Isaiah has in mind the Trinity here. Like, he's not unpacking Trinitarian theology when he says that this king will be the eternal Father. It's not the Messiah's role within the Godhead that's in view, but the Messiah's character towards us that Isaiah has in mind. In other words, this Messiah will lead his people with fatherly care. He is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who offers the supernatural counsel. And he is also the prince of peace, ruling with all authority. Now, when we hear the word peace, what's something that comes to mind? This time of year, it might be a John Lennon song, right? War is over. That song you grew up with it comes on the radio like my whole life. We think of peace as no war. We think of peace as no fighting. And I think that's certainly one aspect of peace. But as one commentator says, peace on the personal level means fulfillment. So in other words, when someone says they die in peace, right? they have died and achieved all that God had planned for them. Peace is free from anxiety because peace is fulfillment. And this king will bring peace 
as David brought peace to Israel, but as the greater David, he will bring perfect peace. He will bring eternal peace. He will bring fulfillment to God's plan. The greater David will bring fulfillment to the promises of God. Look with me at, uh, over to Luke chapter 1. Turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 26. The last weeks we have been reading a lot of Old Testament promises. And now we go to this well-worn passage in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. She was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? An angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. We see that the angel Gabriel, he comes to Mary, right? And, and as we read this story, I don't know about you, but I've heard the story my whole life, and we, we, we key in on certain things, but we overlook certain things, at least I have in the past. But this, this angel comes to Mary and says that, uh, and she is Joseph's fiance of the house of David, and says, you are a favorite of God, and you are going to have a child, even though you are a virgin, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you and you will miraculously conceive. Again, the deists don't like that. But this child that you will miraculously conceive will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High, which is another word for God. He is the Son of God and He will be born what? Holy. That is sinless. Set apart. Perfect. And look at verse 32. And the Lord will give to Jesus the throne of David. Here we have in mind the Davidic covenant. And maybe some of y'all are tired of hearing about the Davidic covenant because I harp on the Davidic covenant a lot. But it, when you understand the Davidic covenant, it makes the New Testament come so much more alive. And, and even this morning with the kids, you know, Micah's teaching the, the kids and, I, and I'm his assistant. And so I don't know what the lesson's going to be. And it was all three of the passages we talked about today. This covenant matters because it's the promise of a Messiah, the Davidic king who will what? Rule forever. Look at verse 33. And Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
We saw last week that a star will rise from Jacob, right? We're talking about light. And so we highlighted the star part. He's going to rise from what? The house of Jacob. And just like the promise in 2 Samuel, this king's kingdom will have no end. Gabriel's announcement to Mary points to the fulfillment of this Davidic promise. All, all these promises, the promise to Jacob, and it also points to the fact that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus is the divine Son of God because He is what? The Son of God, born holy. Jesus is the promised Davidic King. He is born of a woman in the house and lineage of David. The redon, the dawn of this redeeming grace comes through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's two things we should remind ourselves as we think about this today. At least two things. One, we must remind ourselves to cherish God's promises. We need to cherish these promises. If we are not here this morning simply for tradition, right? Like if you didn't just grow up in the church and you attend church because that's what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to give God you know, His nickel of your, your time and then you go off and do whatever you want to and you, you feel better because you've done a little something for Jesus. If you're not just here for that stuff, like if you're here and you're a genuine Christian, like if you're here and you really have have known the grace of God and have laid your life at His feet, we have to cherish this promise and hide it in our hearts. Because we've already talked about the world, man. They're going to tell you you need your forever home. You've got to build a new bathroom. They're going to tell you you need this other thing over here. You need a car or this perfume with, with some gal out in an ocean in a rowboat or whatever. They're going to tell you you need all this stuff, but we need to hide in our hearts the promises we find in these passages and cultivate a hopeful disposition. Does God really promise this? Did God really say this? Did He really come to fulfill this promise? Did, did, did Christ say that He's going to come back for us? We have to press that truth into our heart every day. Not just try and be silly, not just try and be happy, but to be genuinely joyful despite our circumstances. Cherish these truths, friends. Pull them in tight. Don't chase the Hallmark Channel happiness. Don't buy in, but cherish these truths. Second, we have to remind ourselves who we are and live like we have been adopted by the Creator of the universe. Not walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Joyful, like one who really has this victory we read about this morning. We want to say, oh yeah, I got that victory, and then live like we don't. You know, a contemporary preacher, I was talking this morning with, with Alan, a contemporary preacher has said that Reformed theology and Calvinism is for little boys with daddy issues. Right? Like this idea that, that, that God chose me it's really just for guys with daddy issues. Well, I disagree with them. But when I look at a lot of contemporary guys, I see what he's talking about. Right? You guys know the guy. If, you, if, if you're involved in theology at all, you know the guy. You see him on the internet. He's, he's got to get full sleeve tattoos. He's got to wear the coolest shirts. He's got to grow a beard. He's got to drink whiskey, smoke cigars. He cusses. Um, he's going to get mad at you for watching Veggie Tales. All right, he's going to get mad at you for listening to Third Day, but he's going to listen to Cannibal Corpse and watch R-rated movies and talk about their redemptive themes. Right? Like you guys know that guy, right? 
It's somebody who's got a little bit of hold of the doctrines of grace, but divorced it from the rest of the Bible. And if you talk to this guy and you say, you know, man, you're supposed to walk worthy. You're supposed to walk in the light. He says that God calls, He elects, He justifies, and any effort on your part is useless. One salvation, yes. But we are called to walk in the light. A true saint is active after regeneration. You say, well, I don't believe you. Well, I'm going to call on my friend. I'm going to phone a friend. Do they still have that game show? I'm going to phone a friend. I'm going to phone Jonathan Edwards. He says this, In efficacious grace, we are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. For that is what He produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain, and we are the proper actors. We are, in this respect, wholly passive and wholly active. Going a little further, John Gershner, and if you don't know Gershner, he was R.C. Sproul's mentor. He's where R.C. Sproul got that growly voice from. He kind of mimicked his mentor, John Gershner. Gershner says this, efficacious grace is the gift of as the gift of God is quite consistent with our vigorous activity. We are saved and justified by faith alone. We reject the Roman Catholic view of faith plus works equals salvation. But if we're biblical, we also have to reject that faith equals salvation minus works. Because the historic Christian formula is this, faith equals salvation plus works. We are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. If we are called by the king, if we are truly his child, we will act accordingly. Those who have seen the dawn, don't go back to the dark. They walk in the light. Have you seen the dawn? Do you walk in the light? How does your lifestyle point to the grace that you claim was bestowed upon you. If the light has dawned in your heart, you will walk in the light. And if, if you have never repented and believed the gospel, friend, you must do that now. In the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned Isaac Watts writing against deism because of the superficial Christian lives that it produced, people that believed that they were Christians but could do whatever they wanted. Well, another man was also troubled by deism, and he took up his pen as well. His name is George Friedrich Handel. I've talked about him before, so you might remember this story, but it's been a few years. But he didn't write a book. Handel didn't write a book with a really long sentence. He wrote something called The Messiah in 1731. You're familiar with the Hallelujah Chorus. You're familiar with a part of the Messiah. And when the Messiah premiered in this 1700s, 18th century England, uh, with deism on the rise, and he's writing this to combat, one of the reasons is to combat deism, it was so popular that the venue owners had to ask men to leave their swords at home and women not to wear hoop, scoot, hoop skirts so they could pack more people in. And in this classical musical piece, Handel refutes the deists, and he defends Orthodox Christianity. And one of the favorite portions of this whole song is, For unto us a child is born, a chorus that is basically today's text. 
Matter of fact, I made my kids listen to it last night. You're probably familiar with it, right? For unto us a child is born. He wrote that. He didn't write it. God wrote it, but you know what I mean. He, he took it and applied music to it to defeat this heretical view. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah, we find a divine promise of a great light, a light that brings joy, a light that brings deliverance, and a light that brings victory. But most importantly, this light brings and does all of those things through the Davidic King Christ. In the first chapter of Luke, we see that when this light dawns in the coming of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God comes, the Davidic King is here, the ruler over Jacob's house forever. In this second week of Advent, friends, I pray that we would treasure this truth and that we would walk in the light that has dawned. Father, I pray that you would give each one here today the ability to see Christ in this Old Testament passage. Father, I pray that you would draw the lost to yourself, that you would help those who are Christians to hide this truth in our hearts. Help us to champion Orthodox theology, yes, but God, help us also to walk worthy of the calling that you have so graciously bestowed upon us. And we pray it all for the sake and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.